millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll do what we can do and we'll try and do it at scale. But if we save one life, if all the work you do saves one life, what an incredible privilege that would be, right? Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection, and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. What's going on, guys? Welcome back on to the It Ain't Week to Speak podcast. Thank you so much for coming back on and joining me. We're all so, so, so grateful to have you here. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of the CEO series with Georgie Harmon from Beyond Blue. Today, we're going to have Kevin Barrow on. He's the CEO of the Butterfly Foundation. A little bit of background on the Butterfly Foundation for those of you who don't know. The Butterfly Foundation are Australia's leading organization when it comes to eating disorders. So I'm going to have Kevin onto the show and I find it all things Butterfly Foundation. What are they tackling in this space in Australia? How you can identify whether it's yourself or someone else that might be struggling with an eating disorder. But also, I want to gain insight and wisdom from Kevin around business, around how he runs an organization in Australia, how he's transitioned from New Zealand, and all the other great stuff that he's done in his life up until now. But I guess it all comes back to his why. Every one of these CEOs I'm speaking to are all extremely committed to their craft, extremely committed to their work, and it all comes down to the main reason, which is the why, why they do it in the first place. But I don't want to give too much away in regards to this podcast. I really want to get straight into it. It's a second episode on the CEO series. Uh, so without further ado, guys, let's get Kevin Barrow onto the podcast. Well, I'm joined here today on the podcast by the CEO of the Butterfly Foundation, Kevin Barrow. Welcome onto the show. Thanks very much, Sam. It's great to be here. It's a really good and a timely opportunity, I guess, to have you on the show with us today to join us part of the CEO series, speaking around, you know, and we, we'll dive into this at a later time through the podcast itself, but talking around, you know, the mental health challenges around body image and eating disorders is probably something that Livin as an organization doesn't speak so much about. So it's really good to have you on today, get expert insight into what's actually happening in this space, what you guys are doing as an organization to make a difference and how people can support the work that you guys do. But before we go into all that, Kevin, I always like to paint a very clear backstory as to what my guests are up to, but where they've actually come from and why they're in this position they're in today. Walk me through how you as a human being, Kevin, ended up at Butterfly Foundation as a CEO. What was your driving inspiration behind all that? I started life back in New Zealand, so uh, I'm a New Zealander and uh, did all my sort of early education there, did a couple of science degrees and then 
just didn't want to continue doing a, a PhD. It was too long at university. So went out, started a career in actually pharmaceutical sales, and then with that organisation moved across to Australia as a product manager and then worked through the, the ranks of that organisation and then was the sales director, then moved to another medical device and technology company called Beckton Dickinson as a local general manager for Australia and New Zealand. They're a company that had been first and foremost through COVID because they do sort of diagnostic pathology testing and the like, which you can imagine is pretty busy at the moment. My wife uh, along the way retrained. She was an HR professional and she did a degree in clinical psychology. Hence, you know, I've been touched a little bit around the, the mental health area. I have two kids, uh, one 19 and one 21 at the moment. Um, they went through university COVID um, just recently, having that experience, remote learning and the like. When I left BD, I went to Philips, which is a large Dutch company, specializes in, I guess, healthcare broadly, diagnostic imaging and pathology, uh, as well as patient monitoring, and also has consumer and lighting brands. Um, very enjoyable roles. I was the local managing director for Australia and New Zealand. But I must say, in my time in the commercial sector, one of the things I enjoyed doing the most was partnering with not-for-profit organisations. At Beckton Dickinson, we work with a group called Australia Doctors International, and they used to put volunteer doctors up into Papua New Guinea, into a province called New Ireland. And we, as a company, BD, put our own volunteers up there who were experts in pathology and testing to assist those doctors you know, to, to make better diagnoses. And to give you a sense of that, New Ireland is not that far from our northern borders in, in Australia. It has one doctor for 120,000 people in the population overall. So very, very low level of, of healthcare. Probably, I think it's about 180th in the, in the world listings, even though it's so close to Australia. Highest rates of tuberculosis and HIV. And just seeing the connection that the organisation that I was leading had supporting those doctors in Papua New Guinea, going up there myself and experiencing that, it was wonderful, you know, it gave you that personal connection to making a difference at an individual level. And so I suppose after many years working for multinationals, I really wanted to do something different. Um, I had an old colleague from another organisation who was working at the Butterfly Foundation, and they talked to me a little bit about what was going on. The CEO from Butterfly had moved to a new role working for the federal government uh, as the CEO of the Mental Health Commission, and they needed a leader to come in, and it seemed like a great opportunity to, to help. I wouldn't call it giving back because I never really felt I took away. I've always worked in healthcare and always felt that connection to improving people's lives. But it's different, right? You know, chasing a, a social return rather than a financial return is very liberating. I very much agree with you on that front too. And thank you very much for sharing some of your background with us. It seems like a pretty nice transition coming from New Zealand back into Australia and then slipping into the Butterfly Foundation. Has there been a lot of any lived experience for yourself or anyone in your immediate family around this thing or like mental health challenges, something that has hit you at some point or hit someone in your family that you care or love about at some level? So at the Butterfly Foundation, we have a lot of people working with us who have their own personal lived experience, either going through that journey or you know, family or a carer. Personally, from an eating disorders perspective, no, I haven't had a lived experience. My children have known individuals in, in their close proximity that have. My son was at a, a local school where a young boy took his life in year eight at his school, you know, extraordinarily tragic circumstances. And I think that really 
touched me personally. I, my wife is a clinical psychologist and obviously she has her profession in terms of helping. But as you can imagine, that's very, very close to home. And you start to wonder why. Uh, you start to wonder what you could do to help. And you start to wonder if your skills and experiences could be applied you know, differently to make a difference. And so very interestingly, though, once I joined Butterfly, I had a lot of close friends, people I've worked with for many, many years come up to me and then tell me about their family's experience with eating disorders. And I wonder why they never told me before. And partly it was because I had a butterfly on my card now. You know, I wasn't the managing director of Philips, so I wasn't running a commercial organisation. So it was a safe space to talk. And then you realise how prevalent something like eating disorders are, how much stigma there is involved. The inability to share sometimes comes down to the fact that people don't think it's understood. You know, we've got studies that show a quarter of all Australians think an eating disorder is a lifestyle choice. Um, and it's in that environment, that level of stigma, that people wouldn't share, even though they were close friends of, of mine. But now they do. Uh, and as people share, you get an opportunity to help. And I guess that's probably my, my connection to my story. I've always wanted to make a personal difference. And this is a great opportunity to do so. I love that. And I can relate to that on a number of different fronts, even for myself, when Living First started the amount of people that were coming out of nowhere to, to sort of share with you on a deeper level about what they were going through or experiencing. It was almost like it was accepted now that it was something that we were speaking about in a close group of mates and and it really allowed other people to open up and it was almost like a domino effect in a really positive way where, you know, once one person opened up and put their hand up, it was almost like the next person did and when I saw someone open up and some of the conversations were like, well, he did it, maybe it's time that I do it and maybe I go and seek the help that I need to get back on track sort of thing. So it's it's a really powerful way of explaining it, Kevin. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. For all of our international listeners and for our new listeners that are probably joining us today from a number of different countries, how do you best summarise the work that Butterfly Foundation does for the community in Australia in particular? So our vision is to be in a place where all Australians can live free of eating disorders and negative body images. And so that's a very aspirational goal. You know, it's, it's potentially not achievable in our lifetime. But ultimately, if we were successful, you wouldn't need us as an organisation anymore. The absence of us would be our success. But we know there's a lot of work to do. So we work in a couple of areas. So we work in primary prevention in schools. So working in, in high schools around body image, appropriate use of and safe use of social media and alike. We're about to do some trial work in children as young as sort of five, six, and seven, building up those skills for resilience that are really important if we want to avoid the emergence of an eating disorder uh, later on in their lives. So primary prevention is absolutely key, making sure that the children themselves, their parents, their carers, uh, their teachers understand how to protect someone from you know, negative body image and, and potentially the development of an eating disorder. We also see our role as innovating. So looking at, I guess, the system of care around eating disorders in Australia and saying, you know, what's missing? So one of our big ventures at the moment is we have built a residential care facility for eating disorders. It has an Aboriginal name, Wanda Merida, and it's based up on the Sunshine Coast. And That's the first of its kind in Australia, right? Yes, it is, absolutely. Great, congratulations. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a busy time at the moment as we head up to, to open our doors. What we're trying to do there is fill a gap in the system. So very often, if you have an eating disorder in Australia, 
you end up in a hospital in an acute setting and the focus is very much potentially on your physical symptoms, but no one really gets to the underlying psychological symptoms. The individual is back in the community and very often then back in hospital again. Now, it's no fault of the, the hospital, but there's a gap. And so what we want to do is we want to have a system of care where those gaps are filled and where we can teach someone the skills for recovery moving forward. And then the final area is really care and support. So providing support for carers, for loved ones, for individuals who have gone through their own lived experience. And we do that face-to-face and virtually at the moment, obviously through COVID. And we also run the National Helpline. So last year, we had close to 100% increase in contacts to the helpline through the, the height of the COVID pandemic for quite obvious reasons, but I can go into those if you'd like. So we usually take around 20,000 contacts and calls a year. Last year, we took around 30,000. Yeah, so a really big increase, you know, close to a 60% increase over the course of the whole year. So it's in those key areas, you know, working in schools and prevention, looking for innovative treatments and delivering treatment and support ourselves. And then the National Helpline is really, really key because at the moment in Australia, COVID has been a real perfect storm for eating disorders. And we have a huge amount of waiting lists. People can't get the treatment they need, can't see therapists and alike. And so, you know, we help support those individuals in the community until they can get that care. Wow. So it sounds like the 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic really, really was a massive increase on not only core volume, it just goes to show that how many more people and new people from all around Australia are suffering with a mental health challenge and an eating disorder in, in particular. And I guess you guys are leading the charge with this conversation and I love the work that you're doing. And there's so much that I want to know about it personally, professionally, and, and just for my own conversations that I have with loved ones. Let's talk about the stigma that surrounds eating disorders and, and mental health because being diagnosed with an eating disorder is a mental health challenge, a mental illness. We know that. Talk to me through some of the major stigmas because I know that from the outside, some of the conversations that I hear are certainly around, oh, you almost have to be whittling away and you're really thin in way of physical description in order to be suffering with a diagnosable eating disorder or a mental illness. Can you break down that barrier and that myth for us and talk to me through what actually is an eating disorder and how can it be perceived from the outside eye? Yeah, so eating disorders are a lot more prevalent than people think. So it's estimated that close to a million Australians are are touched by an eating disorder. A lot of people think of an eating disorder as anorexia nervosa. So, and they've seen those sorts of of images, which are frightening images. But the most common eating disorders are, are not anorexia nervosa. They're things like binge eating disorder and bulimia. And you can be in a larger body and have an eating disorder just as is likely to be suffering from anorexia nervosa and having different symptoms and signs of an eating disorder. We did a large survey across 3,000 Australians last year, and 90% of people said they didn't really feel confident recognising the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder, which is perhaps not surprising, but we know that only 1 in 10 people in Australia probably get the treatment that they need for eating disorders. So if there's a lack of recognition then obviously that leads potentially to a lack of treatment. And what we do know is if you can identify an eating disorder early on and get appropriate treatment, then the outcomes are much better. But so often ignorance in both the community and in some cases the medical profession means that initial contact with someone who is you know, at risk of developing an eating disorder is not a great contact and that maybe puts them off seeking help. Similarly, you know, carers and loved ones don't necessarily know what to look out for and Through COVID, we saw a lot of families together 
a lot more than they would be usually. And so they're able to see signs and patterns. And that's often why we get calls to the helpline saying, look, I've seen this. Should I be worried about that? What are some of the signs, Kevin? What are some of the clear, obvious signs that someone who might be listening right now can identify them in themselves or maybe in a loved one or someone that they care deeply about? Sam, obviously, I'm not a clinician, but uh, some of them are relatively obvious. So if you see a change in a relationship with food, the children, for example, don't want to eat dinner at the table. There's a real difference in how they interact with food and they interact with the family. Uh, You can see some of these behaviours start to manifest. We know in schools there are different diets that are being propagated across schools. And so whilst diets are not necessarily an eating disorder, they can ultimately lead to one. And so you see unusual eating behaviours, restrictive eating behaviours and alike. So you're looking for that relationship with food, how, I guess, transparent they are with their family. If they're not eating dinner with you all the time, then that's kind of unusual, particularly if that's changed. So that's some of the things to look out for. One of the common misperceptions is the fact that eating disorders only impact females, and that's not the case. So, you know, somewhere between a quarter to a third of all eating disorders uh, are experienced by men. They might manifest slightly differently but it's not exclusively a female illness. It impacts, you know, all races, all ethnicities, all genders and gender identifications. So it is very, very prevalent. I don't think that's understood very well. I'm glad you acknowledged and mentioned that because it doesn't discriminate and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, you could or, or you may suffer from an eating disorder in your lifetime. And I read somewhere online recently that almost 10% of the US population will experience an eating disorder in their lifetime. And I think that's almost the same across the board, Australia and for the rest of the world. The figures don't lie that they're obviously scary, they're alarming, and you guys are doing a remarkable job to make a difference. You mentioned earlier around some of the stigma things around eating disorders, right? What to look out for and, you know, you could be of a larger description or a smaller description. It doesn't really matter. You could be muscly, you could be fit and healthy and still suffer with an underlying eating disorder. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. So we see the prevalence of eating disorders occurring in elite athletes. Obviously, a lot of elite athletes are are monitored, their body, their body fat, and so on. It could be in things like gymnastics or in the arts in terms of ballet and so on. Um, It's when these behaviours, you know, manifest as an eating disorder starting at, at a very early age, and then they continue through. And we can see all walks of life being impacted by an eating disorder. Now, Sam, you talked about some of the biggest stigmas we see out there. I think that the one I mentioned at the start of, of the podcast, which was that, you know, a quarter of the Australians that we surveyed saw an eating disorder as a lifestyle choice, you know, something you can just stop doing or snap out of. I think like 20 years ago, that was the community attitude to depression. It was, you know, to take an Australian view of it, you know, it's pull up your socks, big boys don't cry, just get on with it, mate. Fortunately, I don't think the community in general, think that anymore. They understand depression is a serious mental illness and so is an eating disorder. And they're in fact, one of the most severe and complex. So they can have physical symptoms. They definitely are a mental illness uh, and they have one of the highest mortality rates and one of the highest suicide rates of any mental illness. But the community has trouble differentiating that. And I think part of the role we play at Butterfly is trying to clarify that because it's not something you can simply snap out of. And, you know, when I talk to parents whose loved ones are experiencing an eating disorder, they're distraught because it seems that 
they could just do that. They could just start eating normally. Why do they keep doing that? And then it dawns that actually it is a significant mental illness and it is not a choice. It is not a lifestyle. It is not a diet gone wrong. It, it is a really significant challenge for individuals who are living with an eating disorder. And a very complex one that requires you know, the right care and the right support so that they can get back on track. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And sometimes we won't see the warning signs as loved ones or as friends. Sometimes we just won't, we won't know for a number of reasons. It could be our own understanding or our own education around this. So I always embrace our community to sort of reach out. If if you're in doubt, reach out and ask, ask those questions because it ain't weak to speak. And that's what this podcast is all about, Kevin. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's really important especially with young people today, like people that are going to school. Like I know when I was going to high school, and it would have been a few years ago now, we didn't have access to mobile phones and social media and stuff like we do today. Do you think for young people and what you guys are seeing through literature and research and evidence, do you think social media for young people is playing a positive role or a negative role when it comes to you know body dysmorphia and body comparison, body image and, and this conversation that we're having right now? I think it plays both roles. So like many things in society, they, they can be good or bad depending on how they're used. You know, when we talk to schools, we often talk about safe use of social media. There are sites which would be particularly problematic for someone experiencing an eating disorder that help propagate the continuation of that eating disorder. Likewise, it can be really, really positive means of, you know, interacting with friends and community and alike. And so I think it comes down to appropriate use. What we can't doubt is that, you know, one, social media ain't going away. Two, it's being used more and more. And I think, you know, in the COVID lockdown, certainly we saw an explosion in social media combined with, I guess, social isolation from friends and uh, potentially carers and alike. And so I think that was part of the drive for an increase in recognition of, of additional eating disorders out in the community. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it because I'm also in agreement in, in the fact that social media can play a good and a bad role in anything. Like anything, you can almost have too much of something good in your life is not good, you know what I mean? So it's almost like balancing, finding that fit, but also knowing where you are at in your life and what's helpful and what's hurtful to you, especially if you are struggling right now with an eating disorder. I think scrolling through social media and trying to compare what you look like, if that's what a trigger is for you, to what people are like all over the world that you have no relationship with showing a snapshot of a moment of their life when life's very complex to then compare that to your own is is probably not helpful well absolutely and i think what we do know is the images that you see on social media uh, are very often altered through some you know degree of filtering so what you are perceiving as a real body is potentially not and i think that's very very problematic and i think you know teaching individuals to I guess, filter information like you do in, in the world when you, you teach a kid as they grow up, you know, yeah, believe this, you know, think about this question, you know, ask questions of yourself, don't believe everything you see, because obviously it's it's often a very unreal world that is portrayed on social media. I heard an expert in the field say that, and excuse the analogy because it's a gun analogy, but I think it's appropriate. So they said if eating disorders was a gun, then... Uh, essentially genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger and that's how you get to an eating disorder and so you might have underlying genetics in in a family but depending on the friends that are exposed to the school the social media and alike their environment might trigger an eating disorder whereas the other let's say identical twin doesn't develop an eating disorder 
So we need to be very concerned about the environment that our kids grow up in. I guess teaching them to be critical, teaching them to question, teaching them to understand that that's not always reality are some of the skills that we can develop in our own kids. Yeah, for sure. And that's great. And they're tangible things that people can learn right now is, you know, looking for the facts, what's real, what's not real, and filtering through that using good judgment and a rational mindset, I think is important, but not not always are we we coming from a rational mindset, which is the toughest challenge I think we all face is because sometimes we make decisions in the spur of the moment, you know, it's like an impulsive decision based on something that's a materialistic failure or it it just doesn't add up, it's not real. But in that moment, you've made it or you think it and it's just, it's really hard coming back from that ledge, so to speak. But what are you finding that are effective treatments? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For people with eating disorders. So as I said earlier, the key is getting onto an eating disorder early. So what we do know and what the evidence says is eating disorders can be very treatable if seen early. So one of the keys is making sure that parents and carers, and there's a lot of information on the Butterfly website around what to look out for, but also clinicians can pick up the early signs. You know, it's it's a little bit like if someone was having a, a potential stroke or a heart attack, most of the community know what to look out for, right? So that individual can get uh, help urgently. Similarly, someone with an eating disorder will exhibit certain behaviours that can be picked up on. So I would say first, seek help and do it early. Secondly, there are a variety of different evidence-based opportunities in terms of treatment. So uh, at a young age, things like family-based therapy can be very, very appropriate, but not always is the family in a situation to be part of that. So it's involving family and the individual's therapy. Things like cognitive behavioural therapy and so on have been used a lot. 
And I think ultimately it, it depends on the nature of the individual and what they're going through at the time. As you say, every personal experience is individual. And so therapy needs to be tailored. When we look at residential care that I was talking about earlier, that's really designed to teach the skills for recovery. So when an individual comes out of residential care, they can go and have a meal with friends at a restaurant or a pub. They can go and and be exposed to food in the supermarket and, and shop. They can prepare their own meals. And that takes time to build. And very often the role of lived experience is is absolutely critical. I talk to a lot of parents whose children are going through a journey. And one of the key things is to say, look, there is hope, right? I have many people in my organization who've had lived experience who work awesomely well for us. And other than they bring that perspective, you would never know. But the skill and the ability to model the fact that there is recovery, recovery is a possibility, is about providing hope to both the individuals and their carers. And I don't think it can be overlooked. So for us, particularly at Butterfly, we think lived experience is an absolute key to someone's recovery ultimately. And I wouldn't be surprised if many mental health charities that you talk to uh, through these podcasts talk about the role of lived experience as being absolutely crucial. Absolutely it is. And and there's a lot of science and evidence coming out from that these days. And it's great to see that you know lived experience plays a very important role in combining all mental health organizations for an effective outcome, I believe. And they play a pivotal role in the outcomes of healthy individuals, both themselves and, and, and inspiring other people along that journey. And also, I think from more of a government type of perspective, they play a key role in policy and, and procedures for the future to come, which I think is important and I think is exciting. As a CEO of Australia's you know, leading eating disorder organization as in the butterfly foundation and you guys got some amazing projects coming up i understand that you've got a few campaigns in the works right now what are you finding isn't working mate do you ever sit back and think as a ceo like something's not working right or this these are areas that really need help and it's it's out of my control like talk to me through some of them because we all have challenges one of the challenges if we talk about healthcare in Australia is states and federally there are different buckets of money. So, you know, the states invest in hospital care shared with the government, but they actually do the doing in hospitals, whereas the federal government support general practitioners and alike, pharmaceutical benefits and so on. Very often there's kind of a bit of a disconnect between how the funding flows and how we can best support those in need. So for me that I think is a little bit of a frustration. It requires a lot of work and a lot of collaboration. You know, we talked about the level of stigma in the community. It's easy to talk about, but it's harder to understand what that level is and then figure out how you can do something about that at scale. So we are a relatively small not-for-profit organisation. We also partner with other state-based organisations like Eating Disorders Victoria and Eating Disorders Queensland, Eating Disorders Families Association. So for us, about cracking that is collaborating together to try and get our message across. But, you know, the world is bombarded with so many different messages. And so that is a bit of a frustration because until we can break through some of that stigma, until we can get eating disorders recognised as a really challenging and severe mental illness, we can't then bring other things to bear to, to try and defeat them. So that, that is kind of a bit of a frustration. We also need to, to raise funds. We need to survive. And, and so there are many things that you would like to do on a very grand scale that you can't do on a grand scale. But someone told me once, and it's a story that I've always hold close to my heart, and it's a story, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Sam, it's called the Starfish Story. It was when I was actually in Papua New Guinea 
chatting with one of the volunteer doctors. She was a young lady who just graduated from medicine and she was up helping in Papua New Guinea in incredibly difficult circumstances. And she talked about the story and she said, look, there's a young girl walking down a beach and she's picking up starfish on the beach and throwing them back in the water. And an old man walks up to her and says, what, what are you doing, young lady? And she said, oh, well, all these starfish are on the beach and they're all stranded and I'm putting them back in the water so they can live. And the old man looked down the beach and said, young lady, there are thousands of starfish. How can you possibly make a difference? And she said, you know, throwing a starfish back in the water, that I made a difference to that one. And so it's worthwhile. So for me, we'll do what we can do and we'll try and do it at scale. But if we save one life, if all the work you do saves one life, what an incredible privilege that would be, right? Exactly. And, and it's unquantifiable. I think it's unquantifiable. You, you, you can't put values on that. One life is more important than all the work that we all do. Mate, I appreciate you sharing that with us, Kevin. That was remarkable. I appreciate that sincerely. And mate, what a story. What a wonderful story to tell. And I have never heard of that story ever before. So thank you for sharing. Where to from here, mate, with, with Butterfly Foundation? Where to from here? You guys working, like you mentioned, collaboration is a big part of making this whole dream work and i believe it is but even collaborating's hard you and i both know that we all say collaborating is is the key to success here but even being able to collaborate is a challenge in itself where to from here like what projects have you guys got i know this center is is in in the works up on the sunshine coast which is amazing what do you guys got in the pipeline yeah look i think collaboration absolutely critical when i first came into the not-for-profit sector someone said to me it's a bit like collaboration. And I went, oh, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, everyone collaborates until they need to survive and they need funding. So then when it comes to competition for the funding. And I think, you know, Australian philanthropists are extraordinarily generous. So for us, it's about making sure that people who support us know that not only do we have outputs, we do things, but we seek outcomes. We, we seek to really make a difference. So a few of the things that are exciting us at the moment, and the first one is a program that we'll be launching very soon, which is an early intervention into primary schools, trying to build up the evidence for making a difference. But, you know, children as young as seven or eight are developing eating disorders. It's not common, but if we can teach the skills of resilience early on, then we can make a difference to ultimately preventing these things from developing. And it's skills like self-esteem, understanding that everybody's body is different, but everybody's bodies is powerful. We should celebrate that diversity. And so I'm really excited about that program. Um, we're getting close to developing the evidence behind that and rolling that out. And I think that really points to our mission around stopping eating disorders before they start. Wanda Nerida, which is the residential facility, is a real big step for us. You know, we were an organisation of around sort of 50-odd people and Wanda Nerida almost doubles our organisation. So it's quite daunting. But at the same time, we know it's it's a gap that we need to solve. And so we've been assisted by the federal government to get this up and running. We're raising philanthropy because if you have the capacity to pay, you will. But if you don't, we're trying to support you as well. And so we're trying to raise funds so people can get this level of care, which is not inexpensive, but it's not that different from what a hospital bed would cost to our system. And we think it would make a, a real difference. Yeah, we learned through COVID that you can do things virtually. So it's not perfect, but we were supported by an organisation called Future Generation to run virtual youth programs. So rather than do face-to-face programs in Sydney, where predominantly we're based, we were able to project care to Victoria and Western Australia and to 
outback Australia. And so the ability to do things different, I think, is exciting. And so uh, we like to think we're at the forefront of that and working with others in those areas as well. And then, you know, from a national helpline perspective, how can we support those people who can't get care at the moment? Because with COVID, there was a huge amount of eating disorders that exist, but there's now a tsunami of mental health issues coming through, and it's not just eating disorders. And so how do we deal with those people who are in need? I take calls from parents who are just very smart individuals and they just can't navigate the system. They can't find help. It's very hard. It's very complex, I feel, this space. There's so many organisations and the great intentions, so many great people doing amazing things, you know, trying to save that one life and more the merrier. But there needs to be a system in place that's easy for people to navigate because I find that, you know, as, as my own self personally and the stories that I hear inside living and the conversations that I'm having with people inside the industry, both in the, the States here and back in Australia, is that it's just becoming too complex and it's almost like it's too hard. I'm not even going to try if you're someone seeking care. And I think it's up to us as leaders of organizations like Butterfly Foundation, Living, Beyond Blue, all these great organizations in Australia doing amazing work to pave the way for future generations so it is clearer it is easy to access support and we have made some noise where we're saving lives yeah absolutely and you know you mentioned other organizations i think you know the work that you know tier and and beyond blue and reach out black dog and others do is, is absolutely critical i think for us working closely with this, those organizations so you know beyond blue is very very well known but if someone rings their helpline for example with an eating disorder they might need more specific help and so, you know, our ability to help catch those people and, and look after them is really, really important. So we each play our role. And I think as a community, I was, I was very excited uh, in a strange way when, when the bushfires hit initially last year, which was the first thing we had to worry about, to see all the organisations come together and talk about how they could share resources and support and so on. And, and the one thing we do know about Australia is when they're in a crisis, they they do stick together, right? And, and they do work together really, really well. And sometimes I think when you're after the crisis, you wonder why we couldn't go back to that because that spirit was fantastic. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, if you take a step back and you go, if I'm a parent and my loved one has an eating disorder, where do I turn to? We need to make that easier and clear. And so, you know, some people know about butterflies, some don't. You know, we'd like everyone to know so they could seek help and we could help them or eating disorders, Queensland or Victoria as well. Everyone's trying to help, but sometimes getting the word out there is challenging. So sort of podcast you're doing really help that. And the amount of people that we've steered your way over the years and, and the conversations that I've had with people that have had no idea and I've steered them your way. I mean, not everyone is supposed to know everything. And I think it's important to to do things like this, to spread the awareness, to spread the message, keep doing the great work that you guys are doing. I know you said you've got a smaller side of team. It's definitely bigger than ours. You guys are doing great work. And, I, and, you know, I love that you guys are focusing on this area that needs the help. It needs the support. There are a lot of people out there right now that probably are suffering in severe silence because they don't know who to turn to or what to say or what to admit, you know. And we could have conversations, you know, a hundred different topics in, the, in this same realm. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about creating simple pathways for people to access support earlier rather than later so that they can get back on track sooner. And I think part of understanding how to do that comes down to listening to voices of lived experience. So actually this afternoon, I've got a, a couple of hours session with our lived experience advisory group. So 14 individuals who've got lived experience across Australia who will help us understand, you know, where are those issues? You know, we're an organisation, it would be easy to say, well, we know what's best, so it's A, B or C. 
But listening to those people who are going through those experiences and their families enables us to go, you know what, that's something we need to advocate for. That's something we need to challenge a government, state or federal, about. And knowing that we have the voices of lived experience behind us gives us the power to challenge. Uh, and that's sometimes difficult for an organisation, right, to really, really challenge because you don't want to just go after a thousand things. You want to say one, two and three will make the most difference. And we believe it because we, we have the power of lived experience voices behind us. We need to amplify those voices so they're heard at government level. And sticking to your core competencies to make those changes rather than doing, like you said, the hundred things and, and touching on them slightly, you're better off going all in on the three or four things that you do remarkably well and make a real, real dent in that impact there. And I love that. And I mean, a few things, and I want to ask as a leader now, as a CEO, you're at work, what do you think comes down to you know the success of Butterfly in this current realm of life, in this current day and age, as a leader of, of the Butterfly Foundation? Does it come down to team values? Is it culture? Is it teamwork together? I'm talking about you guys just as a united team, not the outside organizations. I think it's passion for the purpose. Not-for-profits are often called purpose-driven organizations for a reason, right? And when you can connect what you do to actually changing one individual's lives, it's a powerful thing. But if you think we can do that really well, we could touch hundreds and thousands of lives potentially. It's a great motivator. So I think with collective passion comes a desire to really focus and, and make a difference. I think also we have lots of different perspectives at Butterfly. We've got lived experience. We've got commercial perspective. We've got people who are experts in fundraising and alike. And it's valuing everybody's experience. Some experience might be more important in certain situations than others, but understanding that collectively as a team, we take all that experience that enables us to make a difference. So for me, it starts with passion. You know, so often organizations have a set of values on the wall and people don't really look or refer to them. And ultimately what happens is that what people do in the organization is what is valued. And so for us, what I see is a real commitment to just making a difference. We've got people working in this organization that could be doing a huge number of different things, but they choose to work here because they believe it will make a difference. And, and often that's because they've got personal experience or, or you know, a couple of degrees of separation from a lived experience. And they go, you know what? That will be a great use of my time. That will make a difference. And to me, that's a unifying thing, you know, collective passion, really. All right, Kevin, I want to challenge that. So universal passion, unified passion, whatever we want to call it. Do you believe passion can only get people so far? Do you think you also need a certain skill set or a certain talent or a certain continued learning? I'm talking from a, from a team of elite players to try and achieve that desired outcome for Butterfly Foundation as a leader. Do you look for just passion and you can be anybody or does it have to be a combination of that as a first priority? mixed with the specialist in their areas, fundraising, communications experts, lived experience speakers, professional accountants. Talk to me through that part. Show me your business mind. That's what I want to end the show with. So you're right. I mean, passion is necessary, but not sufficient. So you need people who have, have the skill set. So, you know, we're going through a recruitment process for Wanda Narrative Residential Facility. One of the key things we're looking for is... Obviously, if we're hiring a nurse or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they need to bring that skill set to bear. But then there's also, let's call it a, a philosophy or, a, you know, Australian version, the whole ball of wax sort of thing, where an individual needs to understand what we're trying to achieve. 
So, for example, in Wandanerida, everyone will have meals with the participants because, you know, food is medicine and that's part of the therapy. And if you've got a problem with that, then you're not going to come and work at our facility. The building that we have up there is a great building, but it's just a building. It's the people that we put in that building, the love, the care and the skill set that really makes a difference because we're trying to create a family-like environment that teaches the skills for recovery. Of course, there has to be professional separation in that. So you need both. And, you know, I think for an organisation to survive, you need skill and fundraising, obviously. You need to be able to talk to government in a way that is understood and they need to be able to trust you. But also the people you represent need to trust you as well. So, you know, if they felt we were a corporation, now they probably wouldn't want to help us out because, you know, we need to be listening to their voices, but then use our skills to change the world in those areas. And we won't do that without the right skill set and passion and drive. And I think that exists in most organisations, be it, you know, sporting teams or commercial organisations. And I don't think it's any different in a not-for-profit. It's just you know, driving to change someone's life or save someone's lives is a little bit different driving for an EBITDA or, you know, a gross margin. And I've got nothing against the commercial sector. I worked there for many, many years. But when I come to a not-for-profit organisation, it's about purpose, it's about passion, and it's about the skills that you can deliver. I love that, mate. You said that perfectly. It was great. And has joining Butterfly changed your life personally? Yeah, it. Ha- you know, I told you that experience of friends who've come up and told me stuff. I mean, I think that makes a difference. It helps reinforce, unfortunately, that there's a lot of stigma out in the world around mental health and so on. But I think it's brought me closer to friends and colleagues I have. I can certainly understand my my wife's job and job challenges much better. I think over time, it's also brought me closer to my kids as well, as, as I've started to understand what sort of world I want them to grow up in. I think it's good for them to understand that there's there's more to life than doing that job forever and no one carves on your tombstone, you know, you're the vice president of X, Y, and Z, right? No one really cares down the line. But, you know, you throw that one starfish back in the water and you save a life and you can, you know, there's just no greater privilege, right? So, yeah, no, it has it has changed my life, which is not to say, hey, it's not easy. You know, there are things that are complex about, you know, building residential facilities and, and all that sort of stuff. but you ultimately know it's there to make a difference. And when you engage with a politician, they know you're there for something, right? You're fighting for people, but they respect what you're there for too. There's a lot of respect, and I have a lot of respect for all not-for-profit organisations who by and large do wonderful jobs. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're talking to others within the sector because I think it's only collectively that we will make a difference. Lovely words from Kevin Barra there, mate. Thanks so much for sharing. You're a great man doing awesome things. I appreciate your time this morning. I appreciate the work that you're doing, the team are doing. I've connected with you guys for quite some time now. I actually came in your office a few years ago, actually in Sydney. But yeah, love what you guys are all about. We want to share the message as far as we possibly can. And um, I just want to say on behalf of myself and the entire team at Living, thank you so much for your time and thanks for sharing some of your journey and your insight with all of us. Yeah, no, thank you, Sam. It's been great to be able to, to chat. I look forward to listening to the other conversations as well because you, know, you can always learn from, from others doing, doing the job as well. So, yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks, mate. Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please like, share, and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. 
I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, stay well, keep living, and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you and have a top day.